Hey, it's Gregory Warner, and you're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. Before we start the show, we have a survey for you. It's our chance to hear from you, why you listen, what you're listening for, what you want to hear more of. It only takes 10 minutes to fill out. We'd love it if you would. We'll have a link at the end of this episode and in the show notes. And thanks. President Trump shares a few things in common with the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Both are outsiders to politics. Both made their name by starring in a TV show. Zelensky starred in a Ukrainian sitcom called Servant of the People. In the sitcom, he plays this mild-mannered, precariously employed high school history teacher whose fortunes shift one day when he delivers a curse-filled rant to another teacher all about thieving politicians. What he does not know is that one of his own students is secretly filming him through the classroom window. The video goes online. The teacher is nearly fired. But in a twist, the video is so popular that the teacher runs for president and wins. Which gets to one more connection between Zelensky and the American president. Both made a campaign pledge to get rid of political elites, to drain the swamp. In Ukraine, that pledge came most memorably in the form of a trailer for season two of the sitcom. The schoolteacher turned president comes up with a big plan for reform. And then he has a dream, an anxiety dream, where he presents his plan to parliament, and parliament laughs in his face. Zelensky's eyes blaze with anger. He screams. The people of Ukraine have nothing to eat. They're afraid to walk in the streets. This isn't haha comedy. This is comedy is fury. It's bottled rage against the political elites that Zelensky and everyone his age had grown up with. And Parliament responds by pointing fingers. You, you, you're to blame. And then they physically brawl, which is also not quite fiction. In real life, Ukrainians had gotten used to watching Parliament the way some people watch hockey, to see who would hit who that day. So then, Zelensky, in the dream, pulls out two machine guns, aims them at Parliament. And what happens next? It's like a scene from a Tarantino film. It's a stylized massacre, but it's a massacre. This is Rough Translation from NPR, the show that takes you to far-off places with stories that hit close to home. I have lived in Ukraine and I have reported in Ukraine. Government corruption, it's just something everyone there knows about, and I hate to say this, but everybody expects. Ukrainians regularly rank themselves the most corrupt country in Europe. And then, this year, they elected that comedian with the smoking semi-automatics in his hands. That's how badly they wanted to put an end to it. Which country's interests are served when the very corrupt behavior we have been criticizing is allowed to prevail? This is former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, testifying on the Hill. In the impeachment hearings going on in Washington right now... How could our system fail like this? We're hearing a lot about corruption in Ukraine and how it's affected American politics. How is it that foreign corrupt interests could manipulate our government? But all this comes at a time when Ukrainians are right in the middle of what is a very unorthodox experiment to try to fight corruption, starting with the election of President Zelensky. And the thing I kept wondering about is, how is that fight coming along? So I went to Kiev, and I met a guy who might be the perfect person to watch that fight with. So, um... 
if it's okay if I start your story with cancer. <laughs> His name is Dimitro Kurin. Everyone calls him Micha. Uh, is it okay to talk about that period? No, it's totally okay. I'm so talking about it freely. Yeah. It was fun. Micha uses two English words a lot. One is the word fun, which usually means some version of, I can't believe this is happening to me. The other is the word strange, which is often something that should never have been allowed to happen, but was. Last December, when he was 36 years old, Nietzsche woke up to find that one leg was twice the size of the other. In the lab report, he calls it his Christmas present, said he had cancer. Frankly speaking, I wasn't happy. <laughs> That's his wife, Masha, laughing in the background. Because in Ukraine, cancer is still something deadly. We don't have this idea of cancer survivors. Mitya found himself a patient at the National Cancer Institute in Kiev. But he noticed something, something strange. You just go to hospital and where is my button for nurse? There was no call button by the bedside. If a patient needed a nurse, you just have to scream and hope someone heard you. It's, it's very simple, but there are not. There were actually a lot more problems with this hospital than just the call buttons, widespread corruption. But Mitya is nothing if not practical. He spent most of his career in advertising, and he knows what'll get people's attention. So Mitya wrote a Facebook post from the hospital explaining about this problem. And he'd even found a manufacturer who could outfit the whole hospital with call buttons for $500. I said that if you want to give some money for these buttons for National Institute of, of Cancer, you can send it here. I thought that I want like $500, and people gave me like 12000 It was enough not only to buy new call buttons, but a new bone saw and new flooring. Because people have to understand and believe that they come to this hospital to live longer, not to die. During the months Mitya was getting his cancer treatment, the TVs in the hospital were all tuned to the election of Volodymyr Zelensky, who stood in front of parliament and pulled out not a machine gun, but a quote from Ronald Reagan. The government does not solve our problems. The government is our problem. Parliament applauds, but then he announces he's got them in his sights. He is dissolving parliament and holding snap parliamentary elections. His party will run their own candidates. And suddenly Zelensky's team was tapping all kinds of unlikely non-politicians to run, like his fellow actors and entertainers and civil advocates and school teachers, and an ad man who at that moment was in his hospital bed. My colleagues uh, went to the hospital and said, let's go to Parliament. On a chemotherapy drip. They said, I cannot write right now. You see, it's, it's dripping. Do you know the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? No. Well, anyway, it's like an American... Mitya is an idealistic guy. Even his parents warned him. <laughs> because they was <laughs> like, what? Parliament? And Mitya could not blame them. I have seen what Parliament do with people. He'd worked with parliaments in the past and noticed a pattern. Didn't matter who you elected. In time frame, the most active period is uh, like half of a year. Six months. That's how long he felt it took for a critical mass of lawmakers to be on the take, for the disease of corruption to take hold and the normal functions of governing to cease. And uh, after this, all the uh, previous Ukrainian parliaments, uh, they dropped down to 
to the hell of corruption. Think about that for a second. The way Mitya calculates it, a parliament sworn in in August might be useless by Christmas. So he had to think really hard. With those odds, was it worth running for parliament at all? Rough Translation continues just after this break. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith. And on the NPR Politics Podcast, we bring you into the conversation with NPR's best political reporters as we talk about the biggest news coming out of Washington and from the campaign trail. New episodes drop every weekday afternoon. To understand Mitch's thinking about running for parliament, he and his wife wanted to take me on a tour of the city where they live the city of Kiev. On the corner of that house, over there, uh, there's Cooper Pub. Mitya's wife, Masha Saltikova, starts the tour in the famous Independence Square. She points up to a beautiful 19th century building, graceful details, about seven stories high, and perched right on the shoulder of that lovely old building. My God, it's so ugly. <laughs> it's very ugly. Can you imagine that? It's just What we are looking at is cinder blocks and mortar, Someone was apparently trying to build a private apartment on top of this historic landmark. It doesn't fit, it's rude, it's violent. I get what she means about the violence. In New York, where I live, people freak out about any new construction. But this was on a totally different level. Mitya says no one could even find out who was building this private penthouse. On the historical building, it's strange. Strange as in normal for life in Ukraine. A park might be demolished without any warning. A hotel will go up in someone's backyard. No neighbors are asked. Mitya's own neighbor got so fed up with city workers trying to cut down this beautiful avocado tree in their courtyard that he started guarding the tree with a gun. Nobody understands what's going on. Hmm. A lot that of seems people... to be the last line of every story. Yeah, that's true, because <laughs> people write uh, petitions. People write requests. They're trying to understand what's going on. That's fun. Mitya sometimes gets criticized by his friends for fighting so hard about these things. Ukraine has bigger problems, they tell him. Widespread poverty and a war with Russia. But for Mitya, this uncertainty that Ukrainians are forced to live with, maybe, he thought, as a parliamentarian, he could do something about that. That we can build the city of our dream, and we have this chance. If this sounds like a stump speech, it was. It was Mitya's speech on the campaign trail. We don't have power. We don't have uh, city. It's not ours. He went around the city talking about this stuff. We just have to get back. It's very easy. But unlike urban activists in other countries, he couldn't exactly campaign about illegal development because the laws in Ukraine are pretty vague on what is legal and what's not. And this is corruption. Corruption, it's always when bureaucrat can make a decision. As Mitya saw it, the problem was not that some city official took a bribe to bend the law and build a penthouse. The law was flimsy to begin with. And when uh, in the law you have this uh, lacks of regulations or, you know, spots, hidden spots or something else, there is always corruption around it. I heard this again and again in Ukraine. Corruption is not just about the people, it's about the laws. There's an expression that people say, the law is an ox cart. It goes where you lead it. 
Which also, by the way, makes for a kind of mistranslation when you talk to Ukrainians about that famous phone call, the one where Trump asked Zelensky to do him a favor and investigate the case of Hunter Biden and the energy company where he served on the board. The way a lot of Ukrainians see it, that energy company might have broken lots of laws, it might have broken no laws. The way the laws are written, both can be true. It's one reason that one of the most powerful offices in Ukraine is the one that's in charge of prosecuting corruption. For a certain bribe, they could open the case. For a certain bribe, they could close the case. I met Daria Kalinuk in Kiev. She runs the Anti-Corruption Action Center. They could seize accounts of certain businesses and extort bribes in exchange. Daria, I should say, watched the election of Zelensky with mixed feelings. She'd seen that machine gun scene in the sitcom. And she felt you could not fight corruption in Ukraine just by cleaning house. They have to shoot with, the, with bullets from the criminal code. It was hard to have decent lawmakers if you didn't have the rule of law. Okay, I am uh, entering the Verkhovna Rada, which is the Ukrainian parliament. Mitya won his bid for parliament. In fact, a lot of people who ran on the president's ticket won. They had an unprecedented majority and the most number of first-timers to parliament. So I went there one afternoon. I'm walking up the steps, up the marble steps. And ran into a reporter for an English-language paper. Oh, hi, who are you? Vitaly. Who kindly agreed to show me around. Tell me your, your full name. Uh, Vitaly Tisichny. Tisichny is actually the Russian word for a thousand. Yeah, Tisichny. Yeah, it's my thousand. Yeah. So Vitaly 1000. He's covered the previous parliament and this one. He tells me, this parliament, big difference. Uh, I think that uh, those members of parliament are more open. They're younger, more approachable. Vitaly will meet a parliamentarian on the street or the metro, which never happened before. And another thing, these lawmakers actually show up. Yeah, because a lot of members of parliament in the last uh, parliament, they uh, didn't go for a walk. They didn't show up to work. They didn't show up for work. So one of the laws the new parliament passed was a fine for not showing up. You can be docked a month's pay if you miss enough votes. They also passed a law that parliamentarians and other officials have to declare their income and their spending. It's a way to see if people are on the take. And a law that the president can be impeached. In fact, another thing the parliament did is speed up the process for passing a new law. That is the sound of a vote happening as Vitaly and I are watching. You really got to get in fast. Yeah, and like... Yeah, more than 300. There's this big screen in front of parliament. The vote tally is shown. So who won? Oh, wait. Unanimous. Yeah. Unanimous votes are pretty common these days. Someone dubbed this parliament the mad printer parliament for how many laws they're amending or writing so quickly. One thing that Mitya has discovered, though, is that writing his dream bill is not a rush job. His law, it's called the law of the capital, will affect three million residents in Kiev, billions of dollars in investment, he says. So he's been holding these long public meetings to get feedback. He's received hundreds of amendments. In fact, he spent so much time rewriting this new law that he's missed too many days in parliament and he lost his month's salary, which taught him this. The one law you can't change is the law of unintended consequences. We voted fast and oh, oh. <laughs> we didn't pay attention. <laughs> it's normal situation for this parliament. Punishing people for not voting on laws apparently prevented people from finding the time to write the laws to begin with. But surprisingly, Mitya does not make a big deal of this. 
the more I talked to him, the more I realized how differently he and I were seeing what his job was. I was seeing this story as a fight against corruption. He was seeing it as a race. It's uh, a little bit frightening, the speed. You know, I, I, I understand. It's uh, when you uh, go with the car on the very high speed. It's just frightening because it's uh, fast. He tells me there's a game that his new colleagues have already started playing on their downtime, swapping stories of the latest offers. Like He tells me about one colleague who was offered a monthly bribe by a local business leader just to stand up each month in parliament and badmouth a rival. The first was like 30,000 per month. U.S. dollars? Yes. More money than most parliamentarians make in a year. When he refused, the offer rose. Uh, higher and higher and higher. Uh, and then the last was 70. Another colleague of Mitya told this story. A businessman offered him a position as a university lecturer. But he uh, would be the only teacher in this university. And no students? No students, no. Uh, it was the proposal. They share those stories with you? My colleagues. The colleagues. Yes, yeah, they, of course, everybody is sharing. You, you never know, uh, is, uh, did somebody agree? Did they agree to the proposal? In other words, how much time does Ukraine have left? Stay tuned for the next episode in our Ukraine series, where we dig into the serious uses of Ukrainian comedy. That's in two weeks. Today's show was produced by Autumn Barnes, with help from Mitchell Johnson and Jess Jang. Julia Barton edited the episode. Thanks to Ukrainian journalist Alex Klemenov, as well as Jacob Goldstein, Jenny Lawton, Sana Krasikov, and Sergei Leschenko. The Rough Translation High Council is Neil Carruth, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman. And again, we have a survey for you. It takes 10 minutes to fill out. The link to that survey is npr.org slash rough translation survey. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. John Ellis composed music for our show. Mike Cruz helped score the episode. And Aaron Register is our project manager. If you'd like more stories like this in your podcast feed, give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. And of course, we'd love to hear from you. Reach us on email at roughtranslationnpr.org or on Twitter at Roughly. I'm Gregory Warner, back in two weeks with part two of our Ukraine series on Rough Translation. <laughs>